0: Amen. Thank you, guys. Well, good morning. My name is Kyle Collins. I'm the community's pastor here at Pulpit Rock. I'm excited to be with you as we continue our series in the book of Mark this morning. I hope you feel rested and refreshed a little bit with that extra hour. If you are a dad with a wife at the women's retreat, I may not have described your morning, but uh, I'm really glad that you're here. You know, we've been walking over the last couple months through this book of Mark and we've been taking our time, moving slowly, paying attention to to each scene as it unfolds and kind of looking at Jesus and some of how he's acting and what he's saying. And if you'll remember from the beginning of the series, we said that Mark's purpose in writing this book is to present to us this man, Jesus, and to call us to what we do with him as we see him. And so there's something that is so good for me, for us, I think, as we walk through this, that we need to see Jesus more clearly. I mean, if I'm honest, over the last couple of months, there have already been several moments uh, where I have been surprised by Jesus, where I've been made uncomfortable by some of what Jesus has said or done or how he's interacted We say that we're gathered together as followers of Jesus, that there's this journey of faith and we're learning to follow after him. But if I'm honest, kind of growing up in the church and all of the things that I have learned along the way, there's a lot of other stuff that I've piled into this box of faith and belief. There's some of my own bias and my culture and there's some of how I just learned how to do church that I've kind of thrown in and said this is kind of what I believe. And there's this interesting and fascinating thing, if we let him, Jesus will surprise us. That for me, I have this box that kind of contains, I think, some of what I believe and think about Jesus, and he wants to expand it. There's been moments, honestly, in these stories where he has already kind of blown up that box for me. And so I think this is so relevant for us. Uh, I'm embarrassed to admit just how much I need to see and behold more of Jesus and to understand him and so I want to, I know we, Roland just prayed for us, I want to just pray for this morning that that would be true of us, uh, that as we open the text, that we would see more of Jesus and that he would invite us and call us to, to respond to what we see and what we behold. Would you just pray with me just for a minute? Father, we love you. We thank you for the ways that you love us. Jesus, we need to see more of you. We need to see you with clarity and understanding Holy Spirit, we ask that as we open this text, that you would give us some of that understanding and that as we behold him, you would empower us with the courage and with the faith to follow where he leads. Amen. Well, we're going to continue in Mark 6 today. And so if you have your Bible, you can begin turning there with me. Uh, In the scene we pick up today, Jesus himself is not actually present Uh, Which is fascinating because, up until this point, obviously, Jesus is the main character of this text. Um, Jesus definitely is still the main character here. uh, But what we have is this interesting sandwich narrative that starts in Mark 6 6, where the disciples are sent out on the first missionary journey. And then it jumps to this story about John the Baptist, and then it closes with the disciples kind of coming and returning to Jesus. And so, even though that Jesus isn't present in the text except for kind of at the beginning and end in the sending and receiving of the disciples, There's a lot that we learn about Jesus and about his identity still in the text. There's questions around who he is that are kind of raised here. And so let's pick up the story in Mark 6.6. If you brought your Mark companion book, uh, it's scene 14, and you can find it on page 143. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. It's amazing. Now, before we jump into the text, I think there's a lot here. I want to pause and just focus us on the significance of what was happening for these disciples. These men, who were just fishermen, started following after Jesus And they walked with him and beheld and kind of witnessed all the things that he's doing. And for the first time, Jesus sends them out on their own. Like this was a huge thing. And not only does Jesus send the disciples out, it says he sent them with all of his power and authority as an extension of himself. Think about that for a minute. Last week we read a story where the disciples watched Jesus raise someone from the dead. And that same power and authority was imparted to the disciples, and then they were sent out. It's incredible. And I think sometimes the miracles and, and some of the things that we read here, it's easy to miss because they become sort of familiar. Like, we expect that the disciples would go and, like, share about Jesus. But think about it from their perspective here. They were called to follow after him, and now it's their turn to go. I mean, what a, what a kind of moment of insecurity, of fear, of uncertainty, In Mark 7, it tells us that Jesus sends them in pairs. Right away, at the beginning of the verse, I think Jesus surprises me. Like, if you think about it, if the purpose was to get the message out, it would make sense that Jesus would start to send people. So it's not just one person in kind of one specific place of time, but now he's kind of imparted all 12 of these men to kind of go out and to share the message and for it to spread. But if the goal is just to get it out to the most amount of people in the most places, why not just send them all 12 to different places at the same time? Like it would seem to be that that would be strategic in kind of spreading the message. But instead, Jesus sends them in Paris. Now, there may be a very practical reason. I think there's probably some safety and security in not traveling alone. And I think in pairs, they can kind of bear witness to what one another are saying. There's this accountability. But I think you also see something here just in the heart of Jesus, that he was more concerned not just with the message and and how fast it would get out or spread, but was concerned for these men, these men that he cared for and loved. I mean, this moment had to be intimidating and filled with all sorts of potential pitfalls And the encouragement of a friend to go along with the journey had to, in some way, be part of God's provision, part of Jesus' provision and his care for these men, that there was someone to go with them and, and someone to kind of care for one another, that they'd have someone to do this thing together. Their sending was communal. And to me, it's fascinating that Jesus would choose to do it that way, that Jesus would choose to kind of send them alone. Right away he jumps in after that and talks about how they're to be sent. And uh, contrary to how you and I would think about preparing and getting ready for a journey, uh, th- this is totally different. I- I've been fortunate to-, to travel quite a bit. I love uh, traveling, I like to-, to be packed and organized. I think half the fun is actually like getting my stuff ready and I have all these travel hacks and like ways to stay organized and it's super nerdy and silly, I know. Um, but even like seven to 10 days before I go on a trip, I'm thinking about, you know, how many days I'm going to be there, what can I need? And I, like, for me, the goal is like to pack as light as I can, but still have like all the stuff I could possibly need. So in addition to my clothes and things, I usually pack like a little portable, like battery charger. And I have like a headlamp because you always need a headlamp, uh, and cables for like stuff I don't even own, just in case someone needs a cable. Um, And I always travel with my coffee kit. I have this little like toiletry bag and it's got an AeroPress and a grinder and a scale and it's totally not efficient, but it's nice to have good coffee wherever you are in the world. (laughs) But this isn't how Jesus sends them, right? It's fascinating to me. Uh, In fact, Jesus seems less concerned with what they bring with them and more concerned with what they leave behind. He seems less concerned with what they bring with them and more concerned with what they leave behind. He says, no bread, no bag, no money, no extra tunic, leave the coffee supplies, bring the clothes on your body and a staff. And we're not told exactly how long the disciples are gone, uh, but it was likely for months. It's clear that they're being asked to trust God for everything that they would need. Their success, it wouldn't be because of their preparation or how well they packed. It would only be because of the way that God provided. But that's fascinating. I mean, if if I was Jesus and I was sending people on this journey, I mean, I have a packing list. Here's the stuff you need to bring. Here's how to be prepared. Here's stuff that you could run into. But even the places that they stayed, they'd be provided for them and unknown to them until they arrived. We see in how they're sent that Jesus wanted the disciples to trust God to provide everything. And he doesn't just provide and care for them physically. Like, you see that here? I think in sending the comfort of a friend, he cares for some emotional and relational needs too. He gets that this thing's going to be hard. He gets that this thing is going to be scary and intimidating. He gets that that they're going to walk into seeing some of their own brokenness and all of the ways they feel inadequate and unprepared. And this is Jesus raising the dead, healing, casting out demons. And he's like, all right, guys, go ahead. You have all of my authority and power. These guys are like, what? Us? And he cares for them. And he cares for them spiritually, too, in, in giving him, them that authority and power. Their message of repentance, it was accompanied with spiritual power. And it was a demonstration of the kingdom of God. But can I tell you something that's even more fascinating to me about this? Jesus sends these men, even though their own understanding of his identity was still partial. And you know, as we continue to read in Mark, it becomes obvious that the disciples still do not fully understand who Jesus is, or even why he came and, and what his ministry was all about. They, they really don't fully understand and get it. But he still sends them out. And not only does he send them out, he doesn't just give them permission and say, you can go. He says, all of my authority, all of my power goes with you. You are going as me, as an extension of myself. And so Jesus' message, Jesus' reputation, everything is on the line with this group of men that do not even fully understand who he is. He intentionally sends them. Not just without physical preparation, but without the spiritual understanding and preparation that we would expect as well. Like That is incredible to me. He wants them to share what they knew then, even though they would understand more later. Doesn't that give you a little bit of peace and confidence? I mean, I often feel unprepared to be sent. Like I need to learn more or deepen my understanding. That I need to be a little bit older, a little more fully formed, a little more mature. Little wiser, without issues, without doubt. Before I can say yes to what God has invited me to participate with Him in, I have all sorts of reasons I feel unprepared to be sent. What about you? Do you ever feel like you don't have enough theology? Like mistakes that you've made in your past have disqualified you from being sent? Do you feel like you're full of doubt and questions about what you believe? I mean, you're in good company. Jesus was more concerned with them sharing what they did understand and trusting him with the rest. One of the most central parts of the gospel, Jesus' identity, it's not fully understood, and yet Jesus still decides to send them. And we see in verse 13 that supernatural power is on display through them. As they preach repentance, demons are cast out, the sick are being healed. I mean, the miracles that Jesus was displaying, I mean, they had people in awe. Even John the Baptist who came before him, he had this message of repentance. But John didn't work the same miracles. John wasn't raising people from the dead. And now these 12 fishermen who are walking around with Jesus are going around casting out demons and healing the lame and the blind. It's unbelievable. And because of their willingness to trust Jesus and go, the kingdom of God is crashing to earth through these simple unprepared men. This is a huge moment. But in verse 14, the story takes a turn. And this is why this narrative, this whole narrative is fascinating to me. It's this, this mountaintop experience of the disciples experiencing the power and the provision of God, of the gospel going forth, people repenting, evil being defeated, as demons are cast out and sick are healed. It's all contrasted with this heart-wrenching story about the death of John the Baptist. Follow along with me in verse fourteen. It says King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I have beheaded, has been raised. When John's disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Immediately we learn two things in the story related to this Jesus movement. That Jesus' name is becoming known. That word of him is spreading. I think this is likely in part because of the disciples and, and some of the work in their missionary as The message is being multiplied and spread all over. But we also learn that there's confusion about who Jesus actually was. And there was no denying the miracles and the effect of his message. Everywhere he went, people were in awe. But people still weren't sure who this Jesus was. And the leading theory seems to be a resurrected martyr or a prophet. Enter Herod on the scene, who dealing with his own guilt over killing John the Baptist is convinced that John the Baptist has returned from the grave and is this miracle-working Messiah named Jesus that everyone is talking about. I mean, there's a lot in this story. I think the whole scene could be this, I mean, like a television show or movie, and it's hard to read. It just seems like this odd placement of the story. Doesn't it to you? I don't know why Mark includes it exactly here. It could just be that chronologically this is when it happened, and so it's, it's put in, but there's this obvious tension between what we just read about the disciples being sent for the very first time and then the story of John's death. In the midst of all the ways we see the kingdom of God advancing, the success of the disciples, the name and fame of Jesus spreading, and this movement is gaining momentum, then we see evil have its day, in the, in, in the really silly and gratuitous killing of John the Baptist. I mean, imagine being one of the disciples in this moment, having just returned from the journey. You watch God provide for your every need for months, You experience the very power of God through your own hands as you've healed sick and cast out demons. You're bursting with stories about how God showed up and people repented in the name of Jesus being proclaimed all over the place. And you would have had to feel invincible in those moments. I mean, talk about a mountaintop experience. Disciples tasted and saw the supernatural power of God. And surely that would have led them to some of their own conclusions, right? I mean, it would have been me that this kingdom of God, that it would come in power, conquering. I mean, what could stand in its way? Not death, not the evil one in his demons, not sickness or disease. They've seen the dead raised, demons cast out, all manner of sickness and disease healed. And into all of that excitement and into all of that hope, Mark tells us this story of John being martyred. John does what he's told by God to do with courage and with faith and his faithfulness ultimately ends in his death. Like, this wasn't the plan. This wasn't the promise of the coming Messiah, was it? And there's something else. As I read and and, just, and reread this account of John's death, it's hard to ignore how familiar it sounds. Does it sound familiar at all to you? I mean, Herod's fear of John and then later Pilate's attitude towards Jesus, Herodias' relentless hatred of John and the Jewish leader's relentless hatred of Jesus, Herod and Pilate's yielding to pressure by the people and their decisions to kill him, the details of the burials of John and of Jesus. Could it be that even in his death, John is preparing the way of the Lord. I don't know this for sure, but I think Mark includes this here in an attempt to help us understand something about Jesus that even the disciples hadn't yet realized. That this Jesus didn't come in the way that they thought for the reasons that they thought. That Jesus had something else in mind, something even bigger. And this kingdom of God that Jesus brought to earth, that the disciples were helping to advance, it was so much bigger than they realized. That this kingdom of God would affect people who hadn't even been born yet. All of us in this room. That They were helping advance something that was so much bigger than this authority and power that they were experiencing. It wasn't going to topple Rome or keep them each from death. But it was for something else. This coming of the Messiah, it wasn't the end, but it was a beginning. And then the scene closes with the return of the disciples. Verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. You know, Mark uses a word here that's significant. As the disciples return, he calls them the apostles, just translated as the sent ones. The sent ones returned to Jesus and told them all that they had done and taught. I love that depiction. These disciples, these followers of Jesus, up until this moment have become apostles, the sent ones of Jesus. Jesus' message is theirs also to spread and to share. And I think one of my favorite parts of this entire passage, it's actually found right here. And it'd be easy to miss, but I think it shows us something so important about the heart of God. Notice that Mark doesn't record any evaluation by Jesus of the disciples' work. As they come and share all that they did and and taught, Mark only mentions Jesus' consideration for them you catch that? Jesus, unconcerned with their work, at least in this moment, instead cares for them and gives them rest. I love that. I love that Jesus is so focused on what they need, that he anticipates what they need in those moments. And as weighty and as important as this message is that he has entrusted to them, he is even more concerned with his messengers. As weighty and important as this thing is that they were doing, he is even more concerned with them. And immediately, he offers to give them rest and to care for them. Gosh. And we prayed at the beginning that we would see Jesus more clearly and that it would call us to respond to him in some way. And so I want to do something that we, we do just occasionally here, but I want to give you just a minute to sit in that question that we prayed at the beginning. And then after a minute or two, I'll, I'll just close this. But it says, how does this passage reveal Jesus to you? How does it invite you to respond? I believe that Jesus has something that he wants to show you. And so can we just take a minute to sit in that? I wish we had time to go around the room and just talk about what you heard and share the answers to those questions. Because I really believe there'd be a lot that we could learn from one another. You know, for me, Jesus is revealed here as someone who just deeply cares for me. I mean, truly, it's amazing his affection and care for these disciples. I mean, the text is full of these moments where Jesus demonstrates his care provides for them physically, provides for them relationally and emotionally, provides, he fights for them and gives them rest, something they didn't even know maybe they they needed. And maybe in the most meaningful way, he demonstrates his care for them more than what they accomplish and do. And as important as this message is, he's more concerned with these men. I can trust Jesus because of his love and his care for me. And I also see this encouragement and reminder that Jesus wants to send me, even when I feel unprepared. That I don't have to have it all figured out. That there's room for my questioning and unfinishedness, even as I go. I mean, wow. Whatever it is for you, I pray this week that you have the courage to follow Jesus. That believing in his love and care for you, you would trust him enough to say yes to where he's sending you. We close this in word of prayer. Jesus, we want to continue to just see more and more of you. I thank you for the ways that you love and care for me. I pray that you'd remind me of your love and care for me when I'm scared to say yes to that thing in front of me. Jesus, I thank you that you send me, that you invite me to participate in this kingdom of God coming to earth even when I don't feel worthy or ready or deserving or comfortable with it. Thank you for allowing me to be part of this thing that you're doing, for using the the little that I do have. We look to you, we pray that you give us courage and boldness toss aside the things that are not of you and to follow into exactly where you're leading.